Hi, everyone. We are thrilled to have Glass Health as our sponsor. Let's hear from the co-founder and CEO of Glass Health, Dr. Derek Paul, talking about a situation we often find ourselves in. And what I was trying to do and what a lot of my co-residents were trying to do were develop systems to keep track of all of these new things. And so my email and like I got some like podcast uh, show notes, but then I've got like Twitter bookmarks are full of tutorials, but they're not organized. And then I've like snapshot all of these different like chunk talks and I can't search any of it. And that was like, that was very frustrating because there's so much amazing content out there. So the concept with Glass was actually to create a knowledge management system. And some folks are already doing systems like this in Evernote, OneNote, Notion. I mean, uh, and you would see folks flip between many of them because none of them were exactly quite right. And so what we're trying to do with Glass is create a system that's really tailored to the physician. So that's kind of the idea was to really like help folks bring medical knowledge in one place, have something that could grow with you over over your career. And one feature I really love about Glass is that there's this community page where you can see other clinicians' pages of Chuck Talks or notes they've organized on clinical topics that they've chosen to make public. And there's also a Glass Pro version that has really cool visualization features. If you want a one-month free access to Glass Pro, use the promo code CORIAM at glass.health backslash CORIAM. We'll also link it in our show notes. And with that, let's get into this really thought-provoking episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Who Beats, where we challenge you to solve diagnostically difficult real-world cases alongside experienced clinicians. I'm Cindy Fein, a hospitalist at NYU. And I'm John Huang, also NYU faculty working at Bellevue Hospital, New York. Imagine you're at the day team resident or the attending physician listening to a case on teaching rounds. An overnight resident is going to tell you about an admission. Hey, this patient just rolled up a half hour ago. I'm still working on the admission, but let me tell you about her real quick. She's Spanish speaking, so I couldn't really do a full interview with the interpreter phone yet. Plus, the daughter insisted on telling me what's going on. Information's from the ED and the daughter at bedside. But long story short, she's here for melanin as a bit of AKI. ED already called GI for us. Oh, and she also has pneumonia. ED also called pulmonary for us. Wait, ED didn't call Reno for us? I can't help but notice ever since you took over writing Hoofbeats, Cindy, that your on-air voice has gotten noticeably crabbier. How about, why don't we just read their H&P, okay? <laughs> so this patient is an 80-year-old female. She has a history of coffee ground-colored stools about three times in the last week. She's got a cough with just a lot of sputum production for the last two months. She was prescribed a course of azithromycin maybe two months ago, and last week she was given seven days of Leviquin. Maybe she feels a little bit better after all that, but the cough is still really bothering her. On review of systems, she's got progressive fatigue over the last few months, maybe lost some weight around that time too. She has a past medical history of bronchiectasis with non-tuberculous mycobacterium infection and rheumatoid arthritis only on NSAIDs. She's had a C-section in the past, as well as an appendectomy, and the only medication she's taking is diclofenac. She has a daughter with asthma and another daughter with an unknown type of cancer. She lives in Queens with her daughter, 
And she was lost to follow up about one or two years ago because she had to go back to Ecuador to take care of her daughter with cancer. So she's just now returned and she's trying to reestablish care with her prior doctors. Her physical exam is significant for tachycardia to the 100s, but a stable blood pressure. She appears fatigued and she has hand joint deformities that are consistent with rheumatoid arthritis. Her breath sounds are decreased in the bases bilaterally. Her labs are significant for hemoglobin of 5.4 with a hematocrit of 20, platelets of 946, and a white blood count of 15. BUN and creatinine are 20 and 1.5 respectively on a basic metabolic panel, and her baseline creatinine is 0.7 from a couple of years ago. So that's it so far, and I think this seems like a pretty typical medicine admission. Well, let's see what our discussant thinks. Today, we have Dr. Lauren Commissar, who is a hospitalist at the Manhattan VA Hospital Center here with us. This is a lady who is fairly sick. Uh, she's got a few serious problems that seem to be acute, uh, and she's a little bit tachycardic. So she's someone who, in terms of being stable versus unstable, she could quickly go down the route of being unstable. Uh, that being said, uh, her problems seem like they all have good differentials and good paths to kind of go down to work them up. Has she had any difficulty eating or swallowing? Do we have any further details on the mycobacterial infection, like when that was and if she was treated for it and what those symptoms might have been like? And do we have a urinalysis? Do we have iron studies uh, and hemolysis markers? Here, she didn't explicitly say it out loud, but you can tell Dr. Commissar is questioning a few things already. The refractory nature of the pneumonia, the validity of melanoma, and if the anemia is all from acute blood loss versus if it's multifactorial. Since we are, you know, sitting in a call room, we're not going to have any more subjective information until we go meet the patient. But we do have some laboratory data that's starting to trickle in. Urinalysis shows trace to small blood, trace leukocyte esterases, and 39 red blood cells. Urinalysis is negative for protein, but the protein-creatinine ratio returns at 484 milligrams per gram, with normal being less than 200. Full iron studies are not available, but ferritin is in the 2000s, and there's no signs of hemolysis on blood work. On chest x-ray, we see severe, extensive, and confluent, bilateral, ill-defined, nodular, and mass-like consolidative opacities. The findings are suspicious for severe multifocal pneumonia and or extensive airway mucoid impaction, particularly in this patient with a history of bronchiectasis. Other etiologies, including malignancy or metastatic disease, cannot be excluded. Further evaluation with CT of the chest is recommended. CT of the chest. Multifocal airspace opacities and extensive peribronchovascular nodules and mass-like opacities in all lobes. Some of the nodular and mass-like opacities in both lungs have internal lucencies consistent with cavities and or blown-out bronchiectatic airways. The leading differential is a severe atypical mycobacterial infection. Given prior CT findings consistent with chronic MAI and documentation of MAI in prior sputum and BAL. However, other superimposed infections are also possible, including fungal, bacterial, or septic emboli. Metastatic disease could also have a similar appearance, and the nodules are overall most pronounced in the mid to lower lungs, supportive of a hematogenous distribution. The presence of perihilar mixed ground glass and consolidative opacities and interlobular septa also raises the possibility of superimposed pulmonary edema. Alveolar hemorrhage could also account for the ground glass. Cindy's showing me the images now, and wow, Reed does not do it justice. This looks really bad. It's really, really extensive. Listeners, last pause here. 
What do you think? What is your problem representation in this point? What additional data would you want to gather when you actually get to meet and examine the patient? What additional workup would you order at this point? This patient is an 80-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis on NSAIDs uh, who presents with acute dark stools as well as subacute cough uh, and weight loss uh, and is found to have significant anemia, renal insufficiency, as well as diffuse bilateral pulmonary lesions. So now I feel like we're kind of at an interesting crossroads in the case because I, I was not that excited about kind of the pulmonary symptoms she was describing at the beginning. Uh, now we're faced with this pretty dramatic chest imaging. This is dramatic and it's something in the lungs, but like is that could have been something that's chronic and something that's slowly worsening. Um, so I don't know if she had another chest CT, but like maybe her lungs have just always looked terrible. Maybe she's had kind of a waxing and waning cough, uh, presentation that led her to that diagnostic workup for the MAI a while back. And that could be totally unrelated to what's going on now, um, or it could be related and, and we should kind of divert our workup. I think you could invoke some type of upper GI malignancy, uh, such as esophageal or stomach uh, that was metastatic to the lungs uh, and then is, is leading to bleeding, uh, bleeding to the anemia, and then slowly over time, the weight loss and the renal failure. So when I first heard of this case from my colleague, I thought there's a good explanation for every acute problem she has. The melanoma can be caused by NSAID use, AKI could be in the setting of GI bleed. The recurrent pneumonia seems odd, but that can be explained by untreated bronchiectasis in resistant organisms. Like Dr. Commissar said moments ago, all the common problems have good differentials. Yeah, I assume that was deliberate on your part, Cindy. I'll be honest, I have a sinking feeling that in the real world, nine times out of ten, I would just follow the path of least cognitive resistance in a case like this. I see a bunch of familiar clinical problems, and I will do the familiar workup and go down the familiar management tree. Um, as an aside, you notice our discussant is not doing that. They're already trying to come up with potentially unifying diagnoses. And I do wonder to what extent that's a conscious decision on her part. It's how her mind works you know, on the wards, or is this an artifact of our academic case exercise? Now we're going to the bedside to meet the patient as a team. While we're awaiting the interpreter phone, though, we notice that the patient's eyes are red, and she seems to be really bothered by them. I just love how in these cases, a red eye always has huge significance. You know, like if I get a red eye, whatever, Visine, but even though this is hoofbeats, that if I were you, I would pause and lock in your diagnosis now, because I'm willing to bet that our discussant is going to pick up on something here. It's elderly woman with rheumatoid arthritis on diclofenac coming in with several months of malaise, cough, shortness of breath, uh, and weight loss now with a significant anemia and renal failure, found to have these diffuse extensive pulmonary lesions, uh, as well as conjunctival injection. That's honestly the part that's stumping me a little bit. Uh, and it's leading me to think maybe this is more of a systemic inflammatory or infectious type process. Uh, now that we're getting uh, this sort of conjunctivitis. Um, and then we also, our renal failure, we're thinking could be pre-renal, but we also have some hematuria. We have some proteinuria. Um, so you could start thinking down a path of uh, like ANCA-associated vasculitis or other, other autoimmune condition. But then again, that makes it a little harder to tie in the GI bleeding. And has she had any stools that we've been able to catch a glimpse of since she's been here? 
So for our discussion, the chief complaint Melina curiously becomes an outlier here. Nonetheless, she asked for a pulmonary and opto consultation and is working on a systemic inflammatory process, specifically Inca-associated vasculitis. Let's see what happens when we actually get to interview the patient with an interpreter phone. On interview, the patient confirms her 20-pound weight loss in the last three months. She also reports months of progressive hearing loss and a painful red eye with some vision impairment for four months. She reports some bothersome sinus symptoms as well. These have been going on for the past few weeks, and she had been referred to ENT. She had not yet been able to make that appointment. She also started having some significant nosebleeds recently. These had gone to the point where she was swallowing the blood and did coincide with the time that she started having melana. I think we know where this is going. Workup for Anka vasculitis was sent and revealed an elevated proteinase antibody to 5.7, with normal being less than 1. The patient underwent a video-assisted thoroscopic lung biopsy, or VATS, which confirmed granulomatosis with polyangitis, or GPA. Ophthalmologic exam also revealed necrotizing scleritis. She was started on pulse-dose steroids and later transitioned to maintenance rituximab for granulomatosis with polyangitis with upper and lower respiratory, renal, ocular, and auditory involvement. Of note, she did receive an endoscopy after discharge, which did not reveal any upper GI source of bleeding. So Cindy presented this case to me, you know, before she wrote this episode. And I remember at the end, uh, just folding my face into my hands because I had completely forgotten the most basic thing that we all learn in medical school about melana, which is that it doesn't always mean GI. Cindy, you were actually able to interview the doctor who took care of this patient, right? Yes, I would like to introduce Dr. Jonas Zaruski, a hospitalist here with me at NYU, to talk about how he diagnosed this patient in real life, specifically what he thought of the melana. All right. Well, this this was uh, a woman in her 70s who who was actually sent into the hospital for anemia. And in the emergency room, uh, they found that she did have melana and ended up calling GI. They also did a workup for some respiratory symptoms and found multifocal opacities on, on imaging. Uh, and they started her on a treatment for pneumonia. Her hemoglobin was stable in the emergency room, and so GI didn't do any intervention like endoscopy, um, and the patient was uh, sent up to the floor. This was a, a case where I think uh, we could have just continued to treat with, with antibiotics and seen what she did over several days, but when I interviewed her, I got a little, a little more depth to the story, found out she was having other more subacute symptoms, changes in hearing, changes in vision, um, and I sort of took a step back and reset my uh, thinking on, on the case. I thought about it a little before. I thought about it when she had already started been talking about um, you know, visual symptoms and changes in her hearing. Uh, and that with the lung opacities, I was trying to unify those as a diagnosis. Um, and so Wegner's was already sort of on the differential. And I wondered if the melanoma could be explained. And, and I asked her uh, about whether she had had uh, nosebleeds and she said she had been getting them frequently. So that sort of uh, reinforced that that one possibility that I was, uh, uh, you know, considering when I got more of a history. So he was able to take a deeper history. But I feel more bad for our discussant. You asked her to diagnose a patient with an unusual illness without many of the crucial details, with no ability to, and to ask follow-up questions. If I wrote a case for CPC this way, I would get review bombed by angry students. 
I know I am pure evil. However, the way we presented this case is how things unfolded in real life because of the language barrier, hearing difficulty, and other system problems such as long ED wait time. Dr. Zaraski was actually the first person to sit down and properly interview this patient with an interpreter phone, and that wasn't until hospital day two or three. Real life is unfair, and patients don't present with well-written HPI in CPC formats. Life is unfair. Hey, you have gotten crabbier, Cindy. I think what you meant to say <laughs> is that clinical reasoning is interesting to talk about, but it can only be as sound as the data we acquire. I think the saying goes, if you put garbage in, expect to get garbage out, like any machine or model. So I asked both Dr. Zaruski and Dr. Commissar after the fact how they think they solved the case. I think you should always try to challenge yourself and see whether you can come up with one explanation that would explain everything, um, because then otherwise, then you're saying it's coincidental that multiple of these things are going on at once. Um, that being said, this is a lady who was removed from care when she was abroad, and now she's back, and so now she's probably going to list off everything that's been bothering her. So it may well be that she, when some of these things are more chronic, the weight loss, the, the cough, um, and it is just incidental. Maybe she now has CKD that we just didn't know about. Um, so you shouldn't sort of marry yourself to the idea that it's all going to be explained by one thing. Uh, but I think if someone has multiple serious things that could be acute, you sort of have to at least go through the exercise of thinking about what could explain all or at least many of them simultaneously. Often when patients come at you with, you know, many, many complaints, the, the first impulse is to say, hold on a second, stop. I'm just going to focus on sort of problem number one and on an inpatient basis, some of these other problems you could focus on out, outpatient basis, which is often a completely reasonable approach. Um, but I think there's also times when you have to say, can, this give, can these other uh, problems actually be part of a bigger picture? And do I need to uh, uh, do, do I need to consider them when I'm considering diagnostic workup? I think isn't always, um, sometimes we get the Occam, Occam's razor. I think more times than not, uh, we don't. But I think it gets to the point of you have to always look at things in, in different ways. Um, uh, sometimes, sometimes it is the one unifying diagnosis. Sometimes it's a patient with lots of diagnoses. But, um, you know, until you, you talk to the patient at length at the bedside, you, uh, you might not know which one it is. Since both Dr. Commissar and Dr. Zaraski attributed their success to Alcom's Razor, let us quickly refresh on the concept. Alcom's Razor really is a law of parsimony, where the famous medieval philosopher William from the village of Alcom supposedly came up with the idea that plurality should not be posited without necessity. Although all that says is that we should shave away any superfluous explanation with this razor, Oftentimes, people in medicine interpret outcomes razor as having one unifying diagnosis that explains multi-system findings. And this being a medical podcast, of course, we cannot talk about William of Occam without mentioning uh, Hickam of Atlanta, I think. And my preferred formulation is the profane one, which is a man can have as many diseases as he damn well pleases. Without a doubt, outcomes razor and Hickam's dictum are useful diagnostic tools. For example, when I have a patient with CD4 count of 0% with diarrhea, Hickam's reminds me that I have to rule out TB and CMV, even though the cryptosporidium already came back positive. Or when an otherwise healthy 24-year-old with a chronic rash, subacute anemia thought to be from mineralgia presents with pleuritic chest pain, the inclination is to focus on the acute pulmonary symptom. 
but William of Alcom would urge me to dig deeper and ultimately diagnose this patient of lupus. Obviously, old age, chronicity, multiple comorbidities, none of this guarantees Hickam is right, nor does youth, health, or acute illness guarantee that he's wrong. These maxima are just examples of what we call heuristics, methods of problem solving that are neither perfect nor optimal, but simple and cognitively efficient. As you can see, our patient who is an 80-year-old lady who was lost to follow-up for years clearly is not following the rule of Hickam's dictum. And that is something that I struggle with, right, which is avoiding treating what is just supposed to be a useful rule of thumb as a hard and fast rule, when in fact patients are under no obligation to do so. There are a couple more mistakes you can commit when applying these principles. The most famous one being Crabtree's Blondrum, where we force everything to fit together, even if that takes inventing a convoluted, complicated theory. I love the concept of Crabtree's bludgeon. I'm glad that you brought it up here because I think you can see how our discussant avoided this mistake. She was actively looking for a unifying diagnosis, and she examined each piece of data very closely before trying to force them into a narrative. You remember how she was asking out loud multiple times, was pneumonia part of the whole picture? Right. Is the pulmonary finding related to the whole picture? Is it separate? Which of these findings are related? She and Dr. Zaraski also avoided another pitfall. The thematic opposite of Crabtree's would be to throw out a viable diagnostic hypothesis because of an outlier or a piece of data that seemed unrelated with the rest. You're talking about how at a certain point they had both become highly suspicious for a systemic inflammatory process. But they also said out loud, well, this didn't seem to explain the melanoma which could so easily be interpreted as a GI bleed. So personally, I would have thought that idea was dead on arrival. I mean, melanoma is the chief complaint. It's the most severe symptom, and it's the most acute symptom. It really should carry the most weight. It should be the pivot point for this case. So I think in real life, it would be very difficult for me to tolerate melanoma as being the unexplained data point. So I, I found it interesting that both our discussants were able to keep this hypothesis, systemic inflammation. They kept this hypothesis active when they, you know, quote, walked into the patient's room. I would guess this at least partly explains how they recognized as soon as hearing it that the red eyes or the nosebleed were signals rather than just noise. I think both of our discussions showed us that Alcom's razor and Hickam's dictum are powerful diagnostic tools if used properly. That is, do not expect your patients to follow them like rules, and if you are going to apply them, do it with caution and flexibility. I actually overheard Dr. Zorowski share this case in the office with a few colleagues. And I did observe that it's very easy to phrase the problem representation for this case as an elderly female with subacute unresolved pneumonia presenting with upper GI bleed and AKI. When you think of this case as a problem of upper GI bleed, it is difficult to arrive at the diagnosis of vasculitis, right? Obviously, this isn't the first time that problem representation has come up on this podcast, but just in case for our listeners, Cindy, do you want to just briefly review what you mean by the term problem representation? Outside the medicine, a problem representation is a mental model we construct that summarizes our understanding of the problem. Cognitive psychologists believe that when we encounter a complicated problem, before you start solution planning, step one would be defining the problem. Based on this original broader definition. Problem representation doesn't have to be, you know, a paragraph or even anything written. It could be a graph. It could be an equation, an image, anything that describes how a person is conceptualizing the problem they are trying to solve. 
example, in medicine or at least in clinical reasoning lectures, there seems to be a strong focus on the semantics and language of problem representation. It also took on a few additional functions like being a communication tool or teaching tool used to assess learners' understanding of the clinical scenario. There was quite a bit of research done on this topic in the 80s and 90s. Cognitive researchers would listen to expert clinicians and then to medical students think aloud uh, during the same case. And one of the things they noticed when comparing the two is that the experts seemed to be forming their problem representations relatively early on in their process. So the authors proposed that it was by uh, injecting key clinical features and pathophysiology into one's active memory. Um, that problem representation was serving as a link between the raw data and the case and the final diagnosis. Its, its purpose was to cue the retrieval of illness scripts. In the most classic example that was used in these studies, two to three days of right knee pain becomes acute unilateral monoarthritis in a large joint, which should help you retrieve the illness scripts for gout versus septic arthritis. So I think it makes sense that we're taught to state our problem representation in a very formulaic, almost artificial or stilted way, right? It's supposed to, the Society for General Internal Medicine's definition of PR is the one sentence summary that highlights the defining features of a case and that should have three components, relevant patient demographics and risk factors, temporal pattern of illness, and the clinical syndrome. So that closely mimics how we are taught to construct our illness scripts. Listeners, if you remember a prior episode on illness script, we did talk about the concept of script activation. So my next question is, does constructing a better problem representation help you arrive at the correct diagnosis better and faster by efficient script activation? To my knowledge, no study has ever proven that, Cindy. And I think the question starts to break down the more you, you scrutinize it, right? Like, what do we mean exactly by better problem representation? I, to be honest, I have no idea. And I don't think if anyone really knows. Once again, I'm copying the official answer I stole from the Society of General Internal Medicine's um, definition. Quote, a good problem representation captures the relevant information while excluding extraneous information, while the use of semantic qualifiers allows for conceptualization of an abstraction of clinical findings. So in general, we are taught that the more abstract, the better, but that seems to be the only rule at least I know of. You know, it's interesting how I disagree with me if you feel strongly, but abstracting melanin to GI bleed is in the real world almost always correct, right? So it doesn't even register as a step for me. It's practically involuntary. But in this case, that tendency will lead one astray from the correct diagnosis, vasculitis. So is it wrong to do this? I agree with you. There's nothing wrong with abstracting melanin into upper GI bleed. But there is something wrong with committing to that abstraction, especially if it was made too early into the reasoning process. If we think about the process of PR generation, there's data collection, interpretation, abstraction before you form your problem representation. And each step is a potential point for error. When we are stuck with a problem that seems impossible to solve, instead of thinking harder, which is never the right answer in clinical reasoning, it might make sense to take a step back and ask, am I solving the wrong problem? What could be wrong with my problem representation? Was my abstraction of data erroneous? Was my interpretation of the data just wrong? Or going back even further, did I start with incomplete or incorrect data? Do I need to go back and talk to the patient again? Which Dr. Commissar definitely did multiple times during the interview by asking us, is this melanin real? 
And has she had any stools that we've been able to catch a glimpse of since she's been here? Not to cast doubt on things that people say, but um, sometimes what we know as a clinician that looks like bleeding um, is sometimes just less familiar to people. So you want to see it with your own eyes. Problem representation should be flexible and dynamic. Diagnosis is not linear. It's a cycle. Revising your findings, revising your problem representation, going back and forth between the two. I completely agree with you there. In the end of the day, there's the age-old question regarding PR. Does a better problem representation make me a better diagnostician? My takeaway from this case is a good problem representation is helpful but does not necessarily guarantee success, especially when there's a knowledge gap or if I don't already have a good illness group in place for lab problem representation to help activate. But a faulty problem representation that misidentifies the problem at hand for sure will lead us to failure. All right, listeners, that should do it for this episode. Once again, I would like to thank Dr. Zaraski and Dr. Kamasar for joining us on this episode. As always, let us know what you think by visiting our website at www.whoiampodcast.com or send us an email at hello at whoiampodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at whoiampodcast. Special thanks to Drs. Amy O, Shred Trivedi, and Marty Freed, and to our audio editors for this episode along with our other Core IM colleagues. And an honorable mention as always to Dr. Stephen Liu. Opinions expressed in our podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining us with Core IM. I'm John Huang. And I'm Cindy Fain. See you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.